Hi, everyone, and welcome to the BPD Bravery Show. Before we dive in, I wanted to discuss a comment that was left on episode 37 in regards to dating with borderline personality disorder. First off, thank you so much, Dominica, for leaving that comment. I truly appreciate it. On the podcast, we were discussing dating with BPD, and part of it was discussing poly relationships. Dominica left a very important uh, comment, and I wanted to actually take a few minutes to discuss it. It says, I think the poly relationship take is described very dangerously here. If one person leaves you, it doesn't hit as bad. In my opinion, a very bad thing to share, especially since it is a BPD podcast. Now, first of all, thank you so much for pointing this out, Dominica. Now, I wanted to clarify something. It's important to note that this podcast aims to explore different viewpoints and different strategies. What may work for one person may not work for another person. What resonates with you might not resonate with me, right? The comment that you highlighted about poly relationships is just one perspective that was shared by a guest on our show. I acknowledge that every person's journey with BPD is different, it's unique, and there is no one-size-fits-all. I do encourage you listeners to pick and choose the strategies and insights that work for you, that align with your personal experiences, values, and preferences. And again, I apologize if any statements made on the podcast came across as promoting just a singular approach. My intention was never to do that, and that applies to each and every podcast. If any of you have specific concerns or alternative viewpoints to share, I always welcome a continued conversation. And your feedback is very, very important um, in shaping the discussions on the podcast. So again, thank you for uh, expressing your thoughts. And I hope to continue providing content that resonates with different people at different times. And having said that, let's welcome our guest for this episode. So today's guest is Lexi, a writer and speaker sharing content on mental health, grief and sobriety. Since being diagnosed with BPD at the age of 19, Lexi has battled through the stigma to prove that having this diagnosis does not mean you cannot achieve your dreams. She is functionally recovering, but has navigated the full roller coaster to get to this place and offers not just a sense of hope, but also shares her story with a side of realness. She is a beautiful human inside and out, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy this podcast tremendously. So without further ado, let's dive in. Hi, and welcome to the BPD Bravery Show, where we discuss tips, strategies, struggles, triumphs, and success stories related to borderline personality disorder. Here is your host, Faye Green. How were you diagnosed? How do you find out that you have BPD? Yes, so I am 31 now, and I was diagnosed... So I've been saying 19 and I I don't know if I've actually checked that for sure because it's all a bit of a blur (laughs) as is most of my past. So I tried to figure out what else I was doing at that time of life to figure out what age it was. I I can't just spin out like I was 16 when this happened, 18 when this happened. It's like all just a bit of a blur, (laughs) part of BPD, I'm sure. Um, But I believe I was 19. I had just I was just about to start university and I already had a diagnosis of depression and anxiety which I imagine that's a fairly standard route to BPD um, (laughs) as it doesn't get picked up straight away I can't remember exactly why I was on the radar of mental health professionals I imagine it was things that I had done as a teenager 
brought <laughs> them well brought me to their attention and I can like vaguely remember sitting in the room I had my mum with me I vaguely remember the doctor but I can't exactly remember how I felt but I remember thinking like even for the first six to 12 months like what is BPD <laughs> Because everyone seemed to have a different interpretation and perception of what it was back then, uh, possibly still do now. Um, and I just remember like not really feeling any clarity or reassurance. I was like, still like, okay, so I have this. What is it? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> so 12 years later, I, I can't say I'm, I'm much more wised up, but <laughs> certainly uh, more accepting of it. And once you got the diagnosis, what was your route of treatment so I wasn't in a space to be welcome or accepting of treatment I was very much in the headspace of where's the magic wand and can you just give it to me already like I wasn't accepting of the fact that it was my my own journey my own effort you know I was going to have to put a lot in I was just like okay who's going to fix me come to me and fix me basically <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> was my mindset for a while and I I was on uh, I was very likely put on antidepressants from that point because I have been prescribed antidepressants for the majority of my BPD journey which is quite commonplace in the UK in particular I imagine they probably would have spoken about DBT back then but because I was so shut off from anything I just wasn't listening and I wrongly at the time but this was just how I was at the time rejected any form of help but I did eventually start like standard forms of therapy like just traditional talking therapy so that was what I did at that point um I think acceptance is actually a bigger step than I imagined it actually delayed my recovery and my support for so long because I just wasn't accepting anything Mm -hmm. I found, and that's just my personal experiences, first of all, you need to accept, because I, I wasn't in denial, I'm not quite sure if it was denial, yeah, it was denial of, for the first few weeks, but after that, after accepting, it was anger, why me, why do I have it, and I remember crying at night, and just like sobbing in my pillow, take it away, I didn't ask for it, now, I didn't think, my first thought wasn't, okay, how do I fix it? How do I get the help? My first thought was just someone, please take it away. I did not ask for it. These were the exact yeah. words that I actually, I would say was take it away. I didn't ask for it. Please just take it back. Um, which of course, just being in that mindset of someone, please just take it away. Wave that ma magic wand. Again, that that is going to delay getting yeah. treatment because you're asking others to do the work for you which of course it's not fair and it's we didn't ask for it but at the end of the day we have it and we gotta um, yeah. get the right treatment so it's on us to <laughs> go out there and fix ourselves exactly but I do think that you know there there is an element of um when you get given a diagnosis usually if it's physical there is a structured form of treatment the responsibility is taken out of your hands and it's given to others. Obviously, like physiotherapy and stuff does require yourself. But usually someone is there to give you the support and look after you and guide you. With BPD, yes, we have DBT as the standard form of like therapy that is 
the path we will need to go down. But medication wise, it's, it's just so varied, like there's not a medication for BPD. And I think that lack of like clarity and structure at first is quite confusing. It's difficult to navigate. Because I don't, I don't know, maybe back then I was like, well, you don't even know how to help me. So how am I going to help myself? But I think I was just of that mindset. And mindset is a big part of beginning the recovery and the support and treatment. 100%. I think mindset is key. And also, I'm not sure how it is in the UK, but um, here, even if you want to get DBT, you frequently can't because insurance doesn't pay for it in most places. So if if you don't have the money to shell out for, say, here, I was looking into DBT, I wanted to join a group, but the price that I have to pay just to attend one group every week is so expensive. At the yeah. moment, I don't know how I'm going to afford it. So even if there is a way, there is a, a known treatment that can help, it is inaccessible to so many here in the US. Um, I'm not sure how it is. How is it in the UK? So... We are fortunate, you know, in comparison to that, that we do have the NHS and you can access, I believe you can access it on the NHS, which does mean that there's not a cost attached. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the kind of struggle there was, I would find myself in a cycle every six months. So to begin with, the list is 12 months minimum usually to even like get started um that's what I was told and I did join that list but then when it comes around you have the kind of group sessions and the one-to-one -one sessions so you are looking to commit about three hours a week and you have to do that during working hours and I, and I did at some at one point I did speak to my employer and, and get the opportunity to do dbt but then I'd be going to DBT and then I'd be going to work straight away. And um, I did that for like three months. And it, it just, it was counterproductive because it was putting me in a really fragile headspace to then go into the workplace. But I'm massively appreciative that at that point I didn't have to pay. And then it got to the point where I just kept thinking like, I know I need this treatment because this cycle keeps coming back around. And I cannot even... I do think I started recovery before DBT, but I need it in order to progress further. So do I give up my career? Financially, I can't do that. I, I need to have a job. And I've been like working my way up. I don't want to, I don't want to hit the pause button on that. Um, but I eventually did do it privately. It is very, very expensive. And it was very difficult. And it was something that I, I couldn't do for, I, I think I did it for six months in the end, but I could have benefited from doing it for longer, but I, I had to hit the pause button because financially it's just not possible. So there, there is that because I, I think everyone with challenges with mental health or even just difficult periods in their life, it's the same concept for just standard therapy. But because you have to commit a X amount of time, you have to do like group and one-to-one it's a lot, it's a much bigger financial commitment than having therapy once a week or once a fortnight. So yeah, in that sense, it, it doesn't feel like it's accessible. And you also talk about um, struggling with alcohol. So where did that come in? When in the journey? Well, I think I started like most teenagers do. And, and it does feel liberating and fun. And you feel mature when you start to drink as a teenager. And I, I did grow up around alcohol addiction one of my parents had uh, was an alcoholic they were a fairly high functioning alcoholic but I, I saw it used as a 
form of self-medication and that in itself probably should have maybe taught me the dangers of alcohol but um yeah a BPD you're obviously a much higher risk at generating an addiction and I, I don't know if I I think the category of addiction is a lot more broad than we think it's not just someone that drinks every day it's not just someone that can't go without a drink every day it's your relationship with alcohol and naturally I think having BPD you're gonna have an unstable relationship with substances that can be addictive so it did become a form of self-sabotage it it did you know it was blackouts I, I wouldn't remember things um you certainly lose all control of the emotions that you can't even regulate <laughs> without alcohol anyway so, <laughs> oh yeah tell me know, about that <laughs> a few red flags there but it, it took me from the age of like um whatever age I started like it would have been like 17 18 or whatever I've only just made sobriety official this year and I phased out over the course of a year I can count on one hand how many times I had like a drink or two I started having a healthier relationship with alcohol but I knew that you know anything could trigger that that relationship to become unhealthy again and that the better thing would be to make sobriety official hey there warriors before we dive into our episode today I wanted to take a moment to give a special shout out to our wonderful sponsor hopeforbpd.com if you've been a part of this journey, you know that I don't just bring you stories and expert advice. I also am on the lookout for resources that can make your journey with BPD more manageable and more hopeful. Hope for BPD is that resource, a beacon of hope. Whether you're personally affected by BPD or you're supporting a loved one through their journey, this platform is here to assist you in every step of the way. Hope for BPD provides confidential and compassionate treatment consultation, information and research about evidence-based treatments, ongoing, solution-focused, and non-judgmental support for individuals with BPD and family members, and so much more. BPD isn't something you have to face alone or in the dark. So visit their website at hopeforbpd.com to learn more about their services and find that glimmer of hope you've been looking for. Because remember, no matter how tough it gets, there's always hope. And now back to our show. And how did you do it? Did you do it with help or did just on your own? Um... Do you know what? I have been kind of lucky in the sense that I've been struggling with it for quite a few years and just didn't know what was how at all I was going to start that because I wanted it. I needed it, but I just couldn't get there. Um, and I think it has been a phased out approach rather than like I woke up one day and I was like, right, this is going to be my last drink or that was my last drink. And this is sobriety because I found that that was not a way of doing things. I was always going to rebel against it if I tried to lay a rule or a ground rule, I guess. <laughs> it's, a, it's tough being BPD, hey. Um, but I I just one day decided that like, okay, well, I've been phasing it out for a year. Something switched because I lost my mum last year and that should have triggered a spiral. And yes, there were moments that could have been seen as a spiral, but at nowhere near what I expected it to be like. And I think that that kind of was a turning point where I was like, I need to prioritize my well-being now and alcohol, my relationship with alcohol needs to be fixed because I cannot afford to let this spiral I'm a mum myself now as well so yeah I have a two-year-old and and he would have been a big part of that as well because I'm like I cannot let him witness me self-medicate with alcohol like I saw as a child so yeah 
I'm not recommending that, you know, you all need to have children in order to turn mm-hmm. sober, but you have to find a purpose. And if if your well-being isn't a big enough purpose, then try and draw inspiration from elsewhere in your life as well. It's very interesting that you're saying it because um, I personally have never discussed my relationship with alcohol on the podcast, but I think I'm about to do that right now. So thank you. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, at one point in my life, I would drink all day, all night. I actually, I would sleep with a bottle of wild turkey next to my bed. It felt like a magnetic pull to the alcohol. I would, uh, once I was at a psychiatrist at that point that was prescribing me medication and he said, you're not going home. We're taking you to a rehab. And I just, I, I ran out of that office and never returned. And I knew, I know that everyone is different, but I knew that the more you're going to force me not to drink, the more I'm going to want to drink. You could put me in rehab, but if I feel forced not to drink, I'm going to want it so much more. I know that's not the way for me. And honestly, I know that is the way for a lot of people, but you have to know yourself. And the way I kind of, I'd say I kicked this addiction was college. At the age of 20, when did I get my GED? Maybe 24. Because I grew up in a cult. We had no uh, secular education. So I didn't have a, a, what do you call it? I didn't have a, a diploma. So I couldn't go to college without a GED. I got my GED, I think at 24, maybe 25. And that was, that took over my life. That I loved it. I loved college so much. I still miss it. I can't say I gave it up overnight. Again, it was a gradual decline of my intake of alcohol. But it was the college that did it for me. I said, I'm not going to ruin my studies, my grades, and all of that. So you're right. Sometimes it is good to have a purpose as to why are you doing it? Because when I was working full time, I still could not kick it, you know? Yeah. And another thing is that emotions. I mean, it was difficult for me to manage my emotions. And I knew with the alcohol, I was completely out of control. I didn't know what to do. I would just, after drinking like, for a couple of hours, I would just break down and sob because the emotions were so big and the alcohol just added fuel to the fire. Yeah. Um, so, like I said, I've never discussed this openly, but I didn't go the regular route of going to rehab or joining groups. For me, it was I knew that if I take that route at that time, I would rebel. I would want to drink it more. Yeah. So I had to do it my own way, find a purpose. And my purpose was college (laughs) this is a safe space and that's absolutely remarkable um I think it is you know it is uh, everyone has a different experience everyone has a different reason why they drink everyone has a different I I love the magnetic pull that well obviously I don't love that you had it but I love that kind of way of looking at it and I think something about addiction is that you have to want to change yourself because I saw my parent go through rehab I saw my parent have various people beg them to not to drink and the parent wasn't diagnosed with BPD but we are we were essentially the same person I see so many similarities that they could well have had that or had massive massive traits of BPD and it wasn't until they wanted to change themselves. And that's something I learned as a kid as well, because I didn't understand that. I thought I tried so many different things. And and until you are ready yourself, you're, you know, you can be forced into it. There are health reasons why people need to be forced into it, but you need, that change needs to be inside. And 
that power to say, no, you shouldn't do this. You you need to stop needs to be louder than that, but it's going to help me. And this isn't the only way I can, you know, it's a, it's a battle. <laughs> That's true. And also, I mean, with help, that is for recovery for DBT too. I get messages from people saying my daughter, my friend, my sister has BPD and doesn't want to go for treatment. What can I do? At the end of the day, I tell them you can't, if they don't want it, you cannot force them because the person themselves needs to want it. Otherwise, <laughs> it ain't going to no. work. No, I know. I mean, you can try and better understand what is getting in the way of them wanting it. Like, yes, you can't force it. Um, I'm trying to think like what could have done it for me because the majority of the 12 years I've had BPD, I've been refusing help <laughs> because I think I don't need it. I see it as a sign of weakness or I used to. Or I just outright didn't agree that I had BPD. That's been like, I'd say about 10 years of the 12 years. I have just been in outright denial, um, refusing, I guess, to believe that I have that because, yeah, I don't know, for whatever reason, mostly the stigma. So I guess the only thing that you can try to do, because I can imagine that it feels very helpless for the loved ones around them, is to try and understand the why. Um and try and help them understand the why, I guess. Yeah. And you also mentioned that you're a mom of a two-year-old. <laughs> How did being a mom... Now, let me rephrase the question. Did becoming a mom change anything about how you looked at BPD or your journey to recovery? I think it didn't change things as quickly as I thought it would. And especially, like, my how I felt about alcohol and stuff. Um I obviously didn't like drink. Um, I didn't drink when I was pregnant. I didn't drink in the the early stages. But you know, when you become a parent, you have that once in a lifetime chance to go out on the you know once every few months. And um, my mother in law would have him overnight, um, and I thought that I would just automatically become an adult and like mature and be like, you know, I only need like two drinks and like I'm so in control of my life now that I'm a mom. <laughs> that doesn't happen. <laughs> I can tell you now. <laughs> But it, it did give like a sense of purpose. It, it There was a lot of struggle with, you know, am I good enough? Um, he's unlucky to have me as a mum because I have BPD and, and things like that. There is a lot of that identity crisis and struggle, but it's a shining light because um, like just as college was to you, it, it gave me a purpose and it gave me a future. And that's something that I kind of never really had a certainty on before. Um, so, yeah, in, in a lot of ways, it did change. Well, I love it. Um, <laughs> well, I'm not a mom, but with my dog, I... Yeah. Well, then you're a dog mom. So, yes, you are a mom. <laughs> <laughs> I do, you know, like feel like bad for him sometimes that I have BPD. And how was my BPD affecting his life? And wouldn't he be... All wouldn't he be, be better off with someone who didn't have BPD and all that? So, <laughs> well, we love harder than anyone else. So, That's you know, I'm being slightly hypocritical because this isn't tend to, doesn't tend to be what my voice in my head says, but, um, <laughs> but we do love harder than anyone else, and we're a heck of a lot more passionate than anyone else. So, any animal or human would be lucky to have us in their lives. Do you have any advice for someone who is struggling with? addiction let's say alcohol and it's trying to give it up yeah it's it's mad because um I I feel like 
even though I've decided to be open about sobriety and addiction and stuff, uh, still a lot in my head is like, oh, you have no idea. And it's like, well, yeah, but I have grown up around it from a few different people in my life. So I probably do have an idea. Um, I think that, and you could say the same about BPD in a way, the more the more power that you give it, the more power it will have over you. And the more like, it, same with BPD in a way, and like alcohol, if you convince yourself that it has power over you and that it will always be there and it will always come back and that you are the victim to BPD and to alcohol, um, it, it sounds ridiculous, but that mindset is, is key um, because learning that BPD alcohol doesn't have power over me and doesn't have full control and I I can overpower it over time that made such a key difference to to recovery and I think that try and widen your perspective of what recovery is a lot of people are so hard on themselves and I see it on Instagram all the time um people that see posts on BBT BPD recovery posts on alcohol recovery and they're like I'm so far away from that um I, I haven't even started doing those things or I did start and now I'm miles back it's like try and broaden your mindset on what recovery looks like because it is a journey it's not just as you say it's not just an overnight and I'm here like we're still in the journey even though we're choosing or practicing sobriety we're still that journey is still there every day so try not to look at the future and the bigger picture just try and look at the tiny steps that you're doing every day and you might well be starting recovery without really knowing yeah i i'm i'm not sure how it was for you but that was that was it for me i i started recovery without knowing you're 100 right and i know it sounds so cheesy and so cliche but mindset <laughs> mindset is key at the end of the day it really is yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, it's an, a daily mindset as well. And trying mm -hmm. to be trying to be kinder to yourself and, and reframing the thoughts like all these DBT skills. I, I, I can imagine that a lot of DBT skills and CBT could be really helpful in recovery. I know that like we have, I imagine you have, do you have like the anonymous groups in um, yeah. mm -hmm. like the US? Yeah. So yeah. I think like going there is not the... It, it it doesn't need to be like the end goal or the impossible or the start of recovery. Like recovery starts way before that. And they're just there to like guide you and support you because you can't necessarily always do it by yourself as much as you think you can. You know, you will need support and guidance along the way to make it more sustainable. And it's not something to be shameful of <laughs> at all. Re recovery is people that go through recovery are some of the bravest people and, and people with addiction are brave too but I think that oh my goodness so fluffy, <laughs> fluffy. hi fluffy Say hi. <laughs> but it, it's you know it's not something to be shameful about there's so much shame and guilt about addiction and um I think that the work that people with addiction do on themselves make them so emotionally intelligent and strong and resilient and brave and I look up to them so much I, I found my parents so inspirational they did go through the program they went through their practice recovery they started being on the phone lines for AA and that just yeah that gave me a, a 
resilience that I wouldn't have had otherwise. They they are so brave and so are people with BPD. I call them BPD warriors. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and your wisdom and expertise. Um, <laughs> I really appreciate it. You're a beautiful human. I mean, <laughs> how are you for doing this and building a community and spreading hope? And yeah, that is bravery in itself because I've been hiding away. I've been hiding away for so long I never wanted social presence I never wanted anyone to know I had BPD and then I just started Instagram one day and I was like well people that know even my friends are like I'm learning so much about you on this that I never knew and I'm like yeah well it's time 12 years now (laughs) (laughs) it's time yeah it's brave sharing it because I don't share much with my friends honestly so uh that's brave of you my friends most of them don't even know that I mean, my very close friends know that I have it, but the rest, yeah. which maybe it's time to just spread more awareness, honestly, because I think that is key to actually breaking the stigma. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for joining us on today's BPD Bravery Show. If you've enjoyed it, then like, share, and subscribe if you haven't already. Make sure to tune into our show every Monday and Friday. And remember, you are so much more than your BPD.